afternoon. It is a joy to be here with brethren today. Two weeks ago, we started a series on the mission and message of Jesus Christ by focusing on this messianic passage in Isaiah 61 uh, that Jesus quotes in Luke 4 at the outset of his ministry to define his mission here on earth. And as we go through this passage and look at some of the different phrases that describe Jesus' mission and ultimately describe the gospel and its power, I uh, want us to be asking ourselves two questions. Number one, what can Jesus do for me? What is the gospel intended to accomplish in my own life? Number two, what can Jesus do for my neighbor? Uh, how should I be communicating the gospel? What should I be communicating about the gospel and its power uh, within the lives of those that I uh, work with. And so we, we could phrase, uh, or we could entitle this series, uh, What Can Jesus Do For You? And we talked about last time this phrase, bring good news to the afflicted, or proclaim good news to the poor, that the gospel is good news to those who are poor in spirit, who have a humble heart to accept its message. But today, I want us to focus in on the second phrase here in Isaiah 61. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And this is a phrase that is found here in Isaiah 61, but it is actually not found in Luke 4, uh, in Luke's kind of uh, paraphrase or synopsis of what Jesus read and taught on that occasion in Nazareth. Uh, but very clearly, uh, this is... Uh, applied to the work of the Messiah, to the work of the great physician, that he would come to, to bind up, to heal, to make whole the, the broken hearts, the broken lives of those who have been wounded and torn apart by sin. We live in a broken world of broken people. Every day, sin is tearing apart uh, homes it's ruining relationships, enslaving souls, destroying lives. And although all of us at one time uh, have been broken, have been slaves to sin ourselves, sometimes as we grow spiritually and uh, we try to maintain holiness and distance ourselves from the wickedness in the world around us, we can distance ourselves so much to the extent that we forget what it was like to be broken. And we render ourselves incapable or ill-equipped to do the work of the great physician, to reach out and, and to work with broken people. Jesus, when he came to earth, did not view the, the morally upright or reputable in society as, as his primary evangelistic prospect. Jesus, we see, reached out to tax collectors, people who were publicly branded as sinners, the, uh, those who were sh the shameful of society, uh, those who had messed up and broken lives. And so if we're going to do the work of the great physician, we need to be equipped to help these people. If somebody came into our assembly and they said, I have an alcohol and I need God's help to get my life in order. Somebody came in and says, I'm, I'm dealing with clinical depression, 
and I need encouragement uh, from, from the brethren here. If somebody said, I have a broken marriage and a broken home, and I need God's help to, to put the pieces back together. Somebody came in and said, I have a pornography addiction, or I have a drug addiction, and I need God's help uh, to overcome it. Or if somebody comes in who has been involved in fornication or adultery or homosexuality and is seeking to make their life right with the Lord, are we equipped to help these? How would we respond to these people? If people come in with broken and messed up lives, but they are seeking God's forgiveness and strength from Him that they might change, we need to be prepared to minister and certainly I understand that there are times uh, where medical or, or professional help is le legitimate. I'm not ruling that out. Um, but when it comes to healing wounds of the soul and the effects of spiritual brokenness, brethren, we need to be the professionals. We need to be equipped to do the work of the great physician. Um, and we need to be able to do more with somebody whose life is broken than say, what you're doing is wrong, you need to stop it. If they've come for help in overcoming this or putting the pieces of their life back together, if that's what they're seeking, they already know it's wrong. And they know they need to do it. We need to be able to tell them more than that. As servants of the great physician, we need to be equipped and prepared to provide help and support, encouragement, guidance, and healing that only God can provide. So this afternoon, I want to talk about seven things that every broken soul needs to hear when they walk through these doors. Seven things that we need to become accustomed to, to saying as we work with people uh, who are, are trying, with God's help, to put their lives back together. The first thing, is you are at the right place. Instead of being shamed for having the audacity to bring their broken and messed up lives into such a pristine place of holiness and worship, they need to know that we are overjoyed, that they uh, are here, and that this is exactly where God wants them to be. It's not easy to admit it's not easy to reach out to help, especially if this is somebody coming out of the world, maybe coming into a, a room full of strangers and seeking help to get their life right with the Lord. It takes great courage to reach out in such a way, and we need to commend such a heart, such a genuine and penitent heart that would take the necessary steps to reach out for help in this area. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. Those of us may be familiar with the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus here tells to those who trusted in themselves that they were right. And we see the Pharisee praying to himself, thanking God that he's not like other people, that he's not like even this tax and then we see the tax collector far off who is not willing to lift his eyes up to heaven but beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Which one does Jesus commend to us? Jesus 
Jesus commends to us the one who had the broken heart, the tax collector, in his messed up and broken life, who is seeking God's forgiveness and God's transformation. You know, the Pharisee, instead of praying, I thank you that I'm not like this other man, should be praying, God, help me to have the heart. And so we see that we need to commend the heart that would reach out to God in such a way. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, here David in his psalm of penitence after his sin with Bathsheba in verse 16 and 17. Notice what he says. He says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. God does not despise the broken and the contrite heart. We need to make sure that we don't despise it. What made David a man after God's own heart? Was it that David lived a pristine life, that David achieved such a level of righteousness and holiness made him a man after God's own heart. Well, no, we look at David's life. David had a broken life and ultimately a broken family because of him. What made David a man after God's own heart was the way that he reacted to that. His broken and contrite heart reaching out. In Luke 15, in verse 7, after telling the, the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Brethren, if there is that kind of joy in heaven, there needs to be that kind of joy here. And when somebody comes to us seeking help, when somebody comes with a broken life, we need to make it very evident that we are overjoyed that they are here. It's not that, you know, well, we don't know how to deal with that kind of thing here. You know, well, that that's something too serious for, for us. You, you need to go seek some professional help. No, we need to tell them you are at the right place. That is why we are here. We need to appreciate and admire the type of heart that would reach out uh, in its brokenness to have God put it back. And secondly, you need to say, you are not alone. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Here Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Here in speaking about temptation, and in speaking about overcoming that temptation, notice the first thing that Paul says in this verse is, No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. What is God telling us here? Is God saying, Don't worry, everybody does it. Is that the message? Certainly not. He's not saying that it's not a big deal. 
But he starts here by saying that nothing has overtaken you but such as it is common to man to send us the message that we are not alone. You are not the only one going through this. You are not the only one fighting this battle. You are not the only one whose life has been broken by sin. You don't stick out like a sore thumb. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. When somebody is struggling with temptation, uh, we need to make sure that we don't approach them uh, as, as, as higher up, kind of speaking down to the struggles that they're going through, but that we speak to them on the same level, that we too are sinners, that we too have been broken by sin, and we too are in desperate need of God's forgiveness. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, after discussing uh, sin as God sees it within the world. In verse 9, we read, What then? Are we any better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all <coughs> Sometimes, uh, you know, for those of us who have, have spent many years now, in, in the church, who, who have established solid uh, homes and, and families, we, we can begin to distance ourselves from the brokenness that characterized our hearts and our lives prior to that point, um, to the point that, that we feel like, well, well, my sins and the things that I struggle with, they're, they're a little bit more respectable. You know, they're, they're a little bit more acceptable. Uh, they're not as big a deal. Just like these Jews might have looked down upon the Greeks around them. But we need to recognize that uh, we are not any less guilty of having put Jesus upon the cross. It doesn't matter what my sins are. Uh, my sins put Jesus on the cross just as much as the sins of the drug addict or the abortionist or the homosexual or the adulterer. So I need to make sure uh, that when I'm dealing with other people, uh, I'm not speaking down to them, but I recognize that I too am in the same condition, uh, in need of God's grace. We need God's healing and forgiveness just as much as they do. And in that sense, we are all in the same. And closely related with that idea, they need to hear, we are here to help. As a body, uh, the Bible describes us as uh, the body of Christ. We are knit together uh, for nourishment. As a flock, we are packed together for protection. As a temple, we are stacked together for support. As a family, we live together with love. You think about all those illustrations. Many times they tell us something about our relationship with Jesus, but they also tell us something about our relationship with one another. That we are not sufficient on our own. And that God designed his church in such a way that we might be there to support, to protect, to nourish, to encourage one another. That's God's design for this body. And that doesn't just apply to those of us who happen to have similar hobbies and similar interests doesn't just apply to those of us who are at similar stages of life. It applies to each and every one of us. And all the more it should apply to anyone who comes in uh, in uh, need of God's grace, in need of healing. 
we need to equip ourselves to reach out to extend that type of support to the broken, the weak, and the struggling. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Here we see the, the wisdom and the importance of relationships. In verse 9 we read, Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is none, uh, not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Here we see the importance of relationships, of being there to pick one another up, to encourage one another when we are weak, to stand by one another's side as we fight the spiritual battles that we face from day to day. One of the biggest ways that we are going to help individuals who find themselves enslaved to their past sins, dealing with the consequences of their sins, trying to gain freedom from their old life, is simply by making them feel loved, by giving them support and encouragement, by rallying around them and lifting them up. And that is God's design for us. Uh, we're studying in Hebrews today. We covered Hebrews 3 and verse 13. Where God says, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Later on in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, we'll read, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and all the more as you see day drawing Brother, this is why we are here. God designed his church not to be a bunch of individual people living their own individual lives. Certainly, we, we need to have our personal relationship with the Lord. And if, if our relationship is entirely contingent upon our brethren, then there's something missing. But God designed us to be a flock, to be a body. So that we might support and encourage one another. So we might be part of one another's lives. And that requires that there be a certain amount of, of accountability um, in helping one another in our spiritual battles. Uh, that means I'm going to have to be close enough to you to know when you fall. So that I can be there to reach out and pick you. I need to know when you're growing cold so I can come along and, and warm you up and stir you up in your service to the Lord. I need to know when you're facing some spiritual battle so that I can stand by your side. We need to have the type of closeness. We need to extend that type of relationship uh, to those that we work with so that we can be there to support them. We are here to help. Fourthly, we need to proclaim that God is merciful. We certainly need sermons on the justice and the wrath of God. We need sermons on, on, on righteous and holy living. We need to study things like Bible authority um, and like the proper work, worship, and organization of the church. But when somebody comes in with a broken life, convicted by their sin, in need of healing, the primary thing that they need to hear is the core message of the gospel. 
the good news of salvation, that they can be forgiven, that Jesus saves, that God delivers, that their sins can be wiped away. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, we're told if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not, not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can have an assurance that God in his grace and his mercy is there to cleanse us. But notice that assurance does not come from our own righteousness. It's not based on our own faithfulness. Certainly it it requires that we walk in the light as he is in the light, that we continue to seek him, that we continue to, to be faithful. And yet, notice it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Where does our assurance lie? On his faithfulness and on his righteousness. On the faithfulness that he is going to fulfill his promise. On the righteousness of Jesus' sacrifice, providing the just payment for our sins. We need to preach that assurance to those who are struggling with the sin and the guilt of their past life. Uh, The condition here is not that we somehow make it up to Jesus, that we somehow reach a certain level of righteousness and holiness, and then God's grace kicks in. No, it's precisely grace because we cannot accomplish it on our own. We must humbly confess, acknowledge our sins, and yes, turn away from our sins, trusting that He and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his mercy and his grace will cleanse us. Many times when I've worked with people who are, are dealing with a sin that just continues to plague them, that they feel enslaved, it's very easy for them to think, why well, I'm just not worthy of God's grace. Of course you're not. That's why we call it grace. You may think, well, I, I just can't, I can't pray to God. I, I can't seek Him. That's exactly what God does. When we properly understand, when we properly proclaim God's grace, um, we can give them that, that assurance and that strength in overcoming this guilt that continues to plague them. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, describes the condition that we were in when God sent His Son to die for us. Verse 6, it says, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Brother, we were enemies of God, we were sinners, we were ungodly, we were helpless, we could not do anything to help ourselves. And yet, God reached out to us in his grace and his compassion. Even those who crucified Jesus upon the cross. Remember Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. If God can forgive them, he can forgive me. He can forgive you. He doesn't give salvation begrudgingly to us, but joyously and abundantly. Turn your Bibles over to Luke 15. Talk just briefly about the, the parable of the lost sheep a moment ago. Uh, 
and in the same context here, we read the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son. And while this, this parable teaches us many things uh, about our attitude uh, towards those who uh, are in sin, it also teaches us about God's attitude towards those who are in sin. I want us to focus in on the reaction of the Father. Read with me, starting in verse 20. Luke 15, we'll read 20 through 24. It says, So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slave, Quick, bring out the best robes and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And I began to celebrate. The more joy in heaven over one sinner who over Our heavenly father when we come to him in our sins and in our broken lives, and when we bring it before him, he doesn't say, oh, you're back again. I, I guess I'll let you in. You can take a service place. Now we see the father here ran to him, embraced him, celebrated abundantly. Because the son that was dead was now alive. He was lost, is now found. That's God's attitude, brethren. That needs to be our attitude. When broken sinners come in uh, to our sin, when they come to God for healing, we need to receive them the same way that God desires to receive them. I, I know myself personally, many times, uh, when, when I've baptized people, to uh, have their sins washed away, to be born again, I find myself being rather reserved in the joy of that occasion. But that's not a time to be reserved. When when somebody has has been broken by sin and now they are in a right relationship with God, they have a hope of heaven for the first time. We need to be so excited that we would yell hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is the most wonderful thing that could ever happen. Is that the way that we view lost sinners? That's the way that God views lost sinners. That, that is the way that he views this broken heart that is seeking forgiveness from him. And this is not a one-time thing. You see that God continues to be patient and compassionate. Many times as people are born again, as they start a new life, they are still young. And the fact there are still many things from their past life that are enslaving them that they're still trying to work through. But God will continue in His grace and in His mercy to have patience upon them. His grace will continue to cleanse them as they work through their weakness and their struggles. He doesn't expect you, as you come out of the waters of baptism, suddenly to be a full-grown, mature Christian. He understands that we have growing you turn your Bibles to Psalm 103. 
here we have a, a beautiful description of, of God's mercy towards us, his compassion. Starting in verse 11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God does not despise or disdain us and our weakness. God, James says, gives to all liberally and without he understands our weakness. And you know why in verse 14? Because he's the one who made us. He knows our frame. He knows that he made us out of the dust of the ground. And in a physical sense, he made us weak. So we might rely on his strength. And so when we come to him for strength, he's not going to say, oh, you're coming to me again. No, that's what he desires. And he knows our friend. He knows our need for him. He even designed it that way. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, reminds us of the mediating role of Jesus between us and the Father. you want to read with me in verse 15 and 16 here, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. We can know that God is compassionate towards us, not only because he created us, and he knows how he created us, but because he also took part in it. He experienced need. He experienced suffering. He experienced the weakness of our flesh. And we don't have to be hesitant to reach out for him in time of need. As I mentioned earlier, many times people that I've worked with before, when they're struggling with some sin, they say, I just don't feel like I can pray. I, I just feel like as long as the sin is, is, is still in my life, uh, that, that I'm just not worthy to, to come before God. Brethren, that's exactly what God wants you to do. And that's exactly why you need to do it. When you have some sin in your life, God wants you to bring that before him. God wants you to reach out to him so that he might pick you up. And with Jesus as our mediator, our sympathetic high priest, we, we can know that we can come boldly before God's throne, with confidence before God's throne, yes, even when we're in our sin. Because we know that Jesus is there to bring us before the Father. That he brings us before the Father. He says, Father, Brady needs your help. We need to proclaim the patience and compassion give these people strength as they work through these struggles that they may still be dealing with. And yet, more than that, 
they need to know that God can help them to change. That with God's power, this is not something that has to continue to plague them. Sometimes people can become so beaten down and burdened by sin that they lose all hope. They think this is just who I am. I'm just broken. I'm worthless. I'm too far gone. I'll never be able to be who God wants me to be. We need to give them hope. If they believe those lies that Satan is telling them, then there is no way they're going to be able to take advantage of the strength that God has provided for them. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, we read about many people who will not enter the kingdom of God. It says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will enter inherit the kingdom of God. Then it says, such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. God has been transforming lives thousands of And if he could do it to these brethren with their messed up and broken lives, he can do it to our lives. If he can do it with, with Saul of Tarsus, who was active in, in murdering Christians, he can turn him around. He can transform his life. He can transform my life, too. We read earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. We are committed to following God's will in our lives. He will provide a way for us to overcome temptation. Satan tries to convince us that that's not the case, but God has promised he will give us the strength. He will give us the way. That doesn't mean that the way is easy. That doesn't mean that he's just going to take away the desires from my heart. That doesn't mean that uh, I'm no longer going to be tempted. Sometimes the path he gives us is a very difficult path. Sometimes it requires very serious sacrifice. But he will always provide a way. And he will always give us the strength if we are willing. When we think about the enemy that we face, we need to recognize that, that we are not on equal footing with our enemy. We're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against a foe who has been at this game a lot longer than we have. And on our own, we are sure to lose. And yet, while we should not underestimate our enemy, we are foolish. We underestimate the strength that God has to overcome. God has already had victory over the devil. And I can be sure that he can have that same victory in my life. Ephesians 6, starting with scripture, is finally be strong in the Lord. So take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand for. Brethren, if I'm willing to do everything in my power, if I'm willing to, to lay it all out to the Father and say, God, whatever you want me to do, whatever sacrifice I need to make, I'm willing to do it. I can have an assurance, a confidence.
that there is no sin that I cannot overcome by his strength. I have to be willing to take his path. It may be a difficult path. It may be a path of sacrifice. But God has promised, and God is faithful. With his strength, we can stand firm. I'll look at one last statement. I'm confident. Uh, you know, over the last five years of working full-time, as an evangelist, there, there are, are a lot of lessons uh, that uh, I, I've needed to learn and that God in his grace has, has taught me. I'd say this is probably one of the most uh, profound and, and helpful lessons for me uh, that I, I feel like I have learned, and that is the power of expectation, the power of expressing confidence in someone. And I was blown away when I started looking through the epistles and seeing how often we see this. Consider Hebrews 6 and verse 9. Here, uh, the Hebrew writer has just gotten done rebuking these brethren because they are still on the milk of the word. They are untrained. They, by this time, should be teachers. He gives them a very harsh rebuke, but notice what he says in Hebrews 6 and verse 9. Says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things. Despite this rebuke that he's just given them, he says, well, I'm confident you're going to do it. <coughs> Second Corinthians chapter seven and verse sixteen. Remember the church in Corinth. That was that church with, with no problems, right? Now, if there's any church had problems. We see many problems within the church of Corinth, but notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 16. He says, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Paul can say that for the Corinthians. I think we can say it for anyone. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 10. Remember, Galatians starts out that I'm amazed that you are turning away from the gospel to another gospel. Very harsh rebuke, but in chapter 5 and verse 10. Paul says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. Philippians 1, 6 and 7, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you uh, are doing and will continue to do what we command. Philemon chapter 1 and verse 21, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Time and time again, Paul is setting the expectation. You know, when, when we work with people, it's, it's very easy sometimes to think, you know, this, this person's life is just so messed up. They have so many uh, struggles that they're dealing with, so much baggage, there's no way that they're going to be able to overcome this. Brother, if that's my attitude, it's going to be their attitude as well. And it's going to be a self-fulfilling process. And yet, if I have the confidence, not, not just in them, but we see confidence in the Lord and what the Lord is able to do through them. But if I express that type of confidence to them, many times we'll see that's exactly what we need. I need to set expectations uh, of confidence, expressing that in them, building them up in them, that they might uh, have the encouragement and the strength 
deal with the struggles that they're going through. Is this what broken sinners hear when they come in to this assembly? I'll tell you, it, it is not always what I have communicated to the people that I work with. But I want to grow. I want to be an effective servant of the great physician. And I hope all of us here want to do the same. Let's commit to be better representatives of the great physician, to equip ourselves more and more to minister to the broken. Maybe you're spiritually broken today. You're in the right place. You are not alone. We are here to help. God is gracious and merciful. God is patient and compassionate. With God's help, you can change. We are confident in that. Are you willing to bring your broken heart to God? There is more joy over one sinner who repents than 99 just persons. God is waiting to welcome you back. He wants to give you strength. He wants to provide you that way of escape. But you have to be willing to bring your broken heart before him. You have to be willing to allow him to, to be your God. To give you that strength. Give you that cleansing to transform you in the way that he so much desires. Will you let him do that in your life today? If there's anyone here who recognizes that they need God to put their life back that they need God in his grace to cleanse them, that they need to start a new life. There is nothing that would make us happier than for someone to be restored to the Lord and for someone to be in a right relationship with him for the first time. If we can help you in that way, we ask that you let us know at this time.